A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And welcome into the reading room. Yes, it's a wonderful place to be. It's a snug and comfortable place to be, except when you're talking about things of crime, crimes of passion, crimes of evil men, and written from the minds of possibly an evil woman. Well, this is a thing. We're going to be talking today to a female crime writer from here in South Africa. Sarah Key, thank you for coming and joining me in this wonderful room. <laughs> thank you for having me, Mel. Now, okay, so you write about crime. You write about South African crime. And how much of it actually comes from real life stuff? Or is it just mainly made up in your own mind? Well, that's an interesting question. My first the point of departure for my novels is primarily a social theme that mm. grabs hold of me. And living in South Africa, we certainly aren't, don't have many limitations. So the first book I ever wrote, I was in my activist stage and I was doing a lot of training in rural areas and I was getting a lot of information about things that I hadn't been exposed to before. And one of these issues was human trafficking. So that became sort of the foundation pillar for my first novel. I wanted to write about a real story about mm -hmm. how trafficking happens. And then along the way, many other themes of social injustice presented themselves. And so that was the departure point for, for the novel. My fifth novel, I had never dealt with gender-based violence. I don't really like to call it gender-based violence, but abuse. Mm. And so in my last book, I felt I had to finally tackle that kind of issue. So the crime that I present is linked around these issues that I think need to be presented to people in a digestible way. So fiction makes those issues more palpable and packing them into a thriller that's fast-paced uh, probably gets more people to engage with these issues that are quite thorny and quite unpleasant, really. Yeah. And it's always things that are actually on people's minds at the time, especially here in South Africa, as you said, with the GBV. Um, it's not just also, a, you know, male on female violence. There's a lot of other stuff that's going down as well. But I mean, I haven't read your latest book. I'm going to be reading it. I know I've actually had it on my reading list. And you should slap me upside the head for being <laughs> such a bad person on not reading. But it was a weird thing during lockdown last year's lockdown, that you thought, oh, I've got all this time, I'm going to read all of these books. And then you just couldn't. And we ended up binge watching 45 million things <laughs> on television instead, when it would have been a perfect time to read. And I'm, I'm starting to get, having to get back into learning how to read again. It's strange. I haven't read for the last three months. During the beginning of lockdown, I read a lot. But mm -hmm. I think reading is very linked to a quiet mind. So when I am in a state of distress or 
um, not very happy. Uh, I find it difficult to read and difficult to concentrate. Mm. But at other times when life is just so bad, <laughs> reading is the perfect escape. Um, and I know, interestingly, from all my book people that I've met along the way, a lot of the people that I've engaged with who um, have disorders – Reading for them is the greatest escape because while you're watching your Netflix series, you can still be thinking about five other things. Mm. Whereas the cognitive demands of reading make reading an activity where you actually have to focus 100% on what you're doing. Mm. So I think there's great escapism in it. But it is quite strange that I also go through cycles in my life where I read a lot more than at other times. And it's also just finding what you like to read and how that reading makes you feel. I mean, during lockdown, I just, Jack Reacher was my guy. I just want a dude <laughs> Jack Reacher's everybody's who guy. can come in and save you no matter what, you know, in the, in the situation we find ourselves in. I, I mean, I must have done six or seven Reachers yes. at the beginning of lockdown. But Jack Reacher that looks like Lee Child, not the Jack Reacher who looks like Tom Cruise, okay? Yeah, no, no. I've actually, yeah, I've only ever read them. So, oh, okay. so I don't know don't, I mean, anything about it. Do you I've think been... that, I mean, he's writing about himself? Because I look at Lee Charles and he's exactly the, how I picture Jack Reacher to be. Funny, I've got a book that I haven't read that someone gave me about. They spent a year watching Lee Child write. They mm -hmm. sat behind him and they watched him write just for a year. And then they wrote a book about how he writes. I don't know. I just find the character is so appealing mm -hmm. to men and women. And it's just this... The, this rescuer, you know, a person who can sweep in and doesn't matter what he's faced with, you know, he's going to come out okay. And he, and the way he takes them all out, of course. I mean, I don't, I really don't like uber violence at all. But Reacher, for me, saw me through a good bit of lockdown because it's just stuff you can, you know, it's it's popcorn. But it's also good and clever and well written. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. But the other one that I love as well. Sorry, I know we're getting off topic. <laughs> no here, is John Sanford's um, Lucas Davenport. Yes. Oh, yeah. Sudden Prey, yeah. all those Prey books. I love Lucas Davenport, mainly because he loves Easy Top. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we get so attached to characters. Have you been attached to characters or you've got different characters in every book? Um, my first book was a standalone. Mm -hmm. And those characters were, some of it was autobiographical and some of it I used people that I knew who had incredible stories, but obviously disguised them as, as much as I could. And then I wrote a trilogy. So the challenge was then to develop a cast of female characters. Mm -hmm. They were the Sisters of Light. They were going to go out and have these three books worth of adventures in Southern Africa. And then I finished them off. And then I wrote my fifth novel. And that was incredibly difficult to do, partly because of the theme and what I was trying to tackle, and partly because I'd said goodbye to all those characters. So the nice thing about a trilogy is you kind of know who you're who your characters are and what they're going to do, they're more predictable. But this new book with a fresh cast was incredibly challenging. Mm. I had I didn't have those links to draw on and those the the people that I was familiar with. The, the way you've already fleshed them out in the past, so people get used to that. And that's why I think people get so cross when somebody that they've been reading about suddenly gets killed off, whether it, <laughs> whether it be in a book or in a series. I mean, if you think about Kathy Reichs with her Bones books and how people get killed off in their TV series, you get cross. You're like, how can you do that? You can't kill. Bring them back. <laughs> uh, well, I actually ended my last novel in a different way. I was going to take a character and... They weren't going to make it. Mm. And I started writing the book with that intention. 
But then my beta readers just had a complete fit and said, you cannot actually do this. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to fiddle a lot with the ending, and I think I got it right in the end. But mm. but having written the character with the express purpose of her not making it, I think, made her richer and made made the scenes more desperate and kind of heightened the tension. Oy. But in the end, I, and, and people said just a, my first book, yeah, I did send someone off. And, and readers didn't like that, but... It was kind of the only way the story could play out, and it was based on on aspects of of real, of real life. life. Mm. Now, talking about real life, where I mean, did you study journalism? Did you what did you study? I mean, you said you were an activist. So, tell me a bit about your background and where this this yen to write came from. Well, it's weird because I think I, the first time I ever I told my father when I was about eleven, oh, I'm going to write a I'm going to write a book one day, Dad, and he was great support of mine in my life and he said super what's it going to be about and I thought it's going to be cops and it's going to be baddies building forts and taking things I mean I, luckily at 11 I wasn't considering <laughs> grew, grew some murder but I was a child of the radio mm. so we only got a television when I was 12 so I Likewise. grew up I grew up on Springbok radio I grew up on squad cars the I grew mind up, of I Tracy, Tracy Dark, Dark. <laughs> I grew up on so I do have a psychic character in my trilogy which I do think comes from from, from Tracy that dark yeah um and also it's quite convenient as a thriller writer to have someone who can suddenly know where people are and you know it worked quite well for hastening the plot um so i had a very active imagination Mm. i also read quite dark stuff when i was young so i grew up on things like struel peter and i uh, read edgar Allan poe when i was about 10 or 11 i loved poe so that kind of gave me an interest in the bizarre and an interest in the dark and then at university i did a bachelor of arts in english and psychology i then became an english teacher did a very short stint in that and then went into adult education but the kind of writing thing was always a part of me mm. and then i taught some academic writing and then I just thought, okay, what's the next biggest challenge I can give myself? Go and write that book. And that was write that book. And also I had had some extraordinary experiences. I'd gone training in rural areas. I had great ethnographic material. Mm. So so when I studied my master's degree, I also looked at uh, tolerance education. And I took seven people who had been Holocaust survivors, apartheid resistors, and I actually use their stories and analyze their stories. So the the, the narrative for mm. me became something that was very important and that I found to be very, very valuable. So by the time I got to writing, I had a large amount of stuff I could draw upon, particularly for the first book. I mean, the first book just flowed out of me. It was one of those dreams. But that's the thing. People say, <laughs> I want to write a book. And then they sit there and think, well, what am I going to write a book about? But I mean, if you've got an idea... And you can then flesh that out. But for, I think for many people, it's a case of, I don't know where to start. I don't know what story I want to tell. I have no clue. So, I mean, for you, it sounds like it's a lot easier. Well, it it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Does it, it get more difficult as it goes uh, along? Well, the last book, that my last book nearly, I mean, it really was a, such an ask. It was mm. something that I worked so hard at. It was slow. It was grinding. It was painful. I mean, my first book I overwrote, I think I lost about 40,000 words of Tangled Weeds because I just had to add what was in the 
picnic basket in great detail, if just more adjec four adjectives before every noun. And all that had to be got rid of and expunged, which made it much better. Mm. But the writing process was, it was honestly as if I was just plugged into some vault and it just all came pouring but it's an interesting thing that is like you you need to have a good editor to pick up on things and and this is what i want to do i'm going to read people's books and say hang on a second what about that because i think on things like game of thrones all of those amazing parts of the story that they actually developed which went nowhere and the entire thing ended and you sat there and thought well what happened to that loose ends all those loose ends that happened and stories that didn't develop further so you need to have somebody to rein you in Mm. you have like who, who do you work with who does that kind of editing for you well, I am very lucky. So my first book was picked up by an American publishing house, a small independent publishing house, and I got an amazing editor who actually, strangely at that time, lived in Johannesburg. Mm. But I have never, I don't even know what my editor looks like. Because she <laughs> That's has how a, it works, eh? She had a, what, what are those things called on her, on your, when you don't put a avatar. Oh, avatar, She had yes. an avatar and she had no information about herself and she wasn't going to give any. So you would just submit your manuscript. It was all online. Everything was done through comments and mm. through. And if she walked past me tomorrow in the supermarket, I wouldn't recognize her. She then went back to live in England. And uh, my four books were brought out with that publishing house. Mm. And then my final book I brought out on my own, self-published it. But she was my editor for all my five books. And she used to, I mean... You'd think you'd be quite proud of what you'd sent off, Mm. and then it would come back. And, I mean, my last book I think I edited from the time I thought it was ready, I think I did 25, from the beginning to the end, every single full stop, every single comment, Mm. uh, every comma again. So the editing process is grueling, and particularly with my editor, but I wouldn't change a thing. You know, she would nitpick. She would say, have you ever sat in a truck? I don't know if you can get out of a truck if the central locking was on. Next time you see her, I'd be running around looking for 20-wheeler trucks so that I could just get out and (laughs) check whether I could jump out of the window. I'm going to be a truck driver. (laughs) But everything, and just elements of the plot that she didn't like, things that were, and then also I had been a teacher, so the sort of didactic bits that I'd put mm-hmm. in where I'd start preaching about. And she'd say, were you by any chance a teacher? And <laughs> the history of South Africa <laughs> that you'd want to put onto your reader, you know, she'd say, uh, this isn't, this must all go. If it People doesn't, are not going to like that. If it doesn't advance the plot, it must go. Okay. And she taught me to do that. And then I'd think, okay, great. But in book three, I'd think, I've got all this right. And then I would lose it on something else, like passive voice. And then I'd get an edit back saying, PV, PV, PV. And, you know, and so I'd concentrate on one thing and then another thing would entirely go out of the window. So it was, I mean, writing is hard, hard work. And the thing is that that self-published indies have got a bad reputation because people don't spend the money and the time on mm. the editing. Mm. And it is so critical. So writing the book is the easy part. The next part is getting that book into proper shape and then the next part is marketing that book and getting it out but it's an interesting thing well at the, at the end of books you know the people say thank you to this person for helping me with this and is it, i mean i read as i read a lot and i'm always like why do they need somebody who's an expert in that i don't even remember it in the in the book and you're sitting there and thinking they've gone to all of this trouble to learn about guns or to learn about a helicopter or whatever it may be but you, it just skips straight over your head as you're reading it. And it, you know, you could just say it. You don't need to go and actually research it in that depth. But there are certain things that if you get it wrong and the person comes around, they go, oh, 
editing at the moment. And I mean, you would think that somebody like Karen Slaughter, who has so many books out, was comprised of three times in the book that I'm reading at the moment. And I'm sitting there and thinking, I want to find the editor and shoot them. Oh, no. <laughs> so, Look, little bugbears. There are, but you also, you can't get your book perfect. You know? mm. And every time you see another error, if you're in indie, you're going to pay to have that Changed, changed made, yeah. you know, and there's a time when your typesetter just says, "Enough, enough, I can't anymore," you know. Um, so it's, it helps when you're with a big publishing house, and then in your reruns, you know, new print run, you, you can, can fix everything. It. And why did you go indie on this one and not stay with the same publishing house? Publishing house in in America folded. Oh, really? Oh. But I, it was quite a win because then I got all the I got all the royal I got my titles back in a way. So they had put in all that and developed the books, and now I get you know 100% of the royalties of any of my books that I I sell. We have quite a few publishing houses in South Africa that are really behind South African writers, and I mean we think about Margie Orford. Um, who else are some of the other wonderful South African um, thriller writers, females? I mean, I read so many, and now yeah. you're asking me. I, can't I mean, I even think about Rollers and Opolis with Bubble when she wrote that book about that big famous murder that happened. And I sit there and I think, well, there's this thing: are the publishing houses still looking for the Dion Mayers, or are they prepared to take a chance on actually going with women? Because it's not really. I mean, we do talk about women who write really great thrillers. I mean, just go back to the days of Agatha Christie and that kind of thing. But do you think that they still think that men are better thriller writers? I just think about Castle when he has all of like, you know, James Patterson and all of those people playing poker. There were no women. You know, I've never, it's, it's strange, but in my life, I've never felt that being a woman has stopped me from doing anything I wanted to do. Hmm. I mean, on this huge book group that I'm part of on Facebook, Avid Readers, I've seen people write, write there, I will not read a crime thriller by a woman, for example. I mean, I just don't get that. With the publishing thing in South Africa, it's just they never ever – I obviously, you know, you submit. Mm. Um, they never liked what I sent them. And they always told me, I don't get this. What is this? Is this fiction? Is this – You know, I just could never get any kind of interest mm. in my work from any of our publishing houses here. Um, and then – when I started receiving rejections, I just got a pickup from another place, and I wanted to I wanted to carry on writing, so I took it and I ran with it. Mm. But I think the books that come out in South Africa that are, I, I find it quite puzzling. I look at what is brought out, mm. and I think that quite a lot of it is not the best that we could do. Uh, I, I've read indies, I've read other writers that I think are far better than some of the work that's being published. So mm. I don't I don't know really what what these publishers are looking for, but it, it isn't what I produced, whether I was a woman or not. It just people didn't like it. They said it won't sell. People don't really want to read this. We're not sure what you want to do here. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can be quite depressing when you suddenly get told, no, we don't want this anymore, thank you. We don't, we're not interested. And you sit there and go, well, that, this is my baby. It's like somebody turning around saying, well, I don't like your child. You know. Well, you learn, you know, you learn if you want to carry on that you actually got to have big girl panties and you got to, you know, you have to learn to write for yourself. 
Yeah, as strange as and I've been through many cycles in the five novels that I've I wrote only for myself. I had the most superb time. Mm. I started then feeling dissatisfied and wanting more readers and driving myself harder to market and and then I kind of lost the joy in what I did. And I wanted to be recognized and I'd I wanted to be recognized at home for what I did and I didn't get that recognition. And then I I, I came full circle and then I just went back to hey, I want to write these mm. books because this story will not leave me alone. The story is driving me mad. It won't let me sleep at night. It won't let me, you know, and then I finally sort of came full circle, came back to, well, this is what I write. I'm growing a readership of people who like what I write and I can't change. I mean, I couldn't, people who are clever about it probably look at what is the niche market looking for right now. So there was a stage where people were writing a lot of, well, romance is big now, but there was a lot of this dark, sexy stuff you know after shades of gray gray. but then i I, I, I have to go and google what it was mmf you know male male female and all this and it was at a stage that erotica was doing incredibly well and people were writing it but i just for me the journey of what i write has been such a personal one that the story is the story for me Mm. and producing it and writing it in beautiful language and using lovely figurative language that I've always loved that's relevant to my characters' lives. And that's one thing my editor taught me was that, you know, if you're going to use a metaphor, it Mm. has to actually be applicable to the life of your character. So also in my last book, I don't have that many white characters. So I I didn't have that many cultural references Mm. to draw upon. So I would, it would take me days, you know, to say, Oh, Sonazo's heart was as difficult to open as a Zambuck tin. And then I'd get it and I'd think, wow, you know, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't, it was difficult for me because I didn't have much that was familiar to draw upon. Mm. And that I think as well was a big challenge. And the nice thing about writing as a South African is you don't get that sort of cultural appropriation threat of the whip hanging over you. So in countries like America, when a white woman writes a book about a black woman's experience, you know, it's it's quite nerve-wracking because people can really take you mm. on about it. Mm. And I pushed my book a lot into the black book clubs that I've been involved with. You know, got some feedback that was very useful, mm. but I never, ever got told, you know, you can't be writing a book like that because you're not a black woman. So I do think that here there's a great greater space to express yourself and to take those kind of risks as a writer. Mm. Now, with other writers, who have been the ones that have had the most impact on you over the years? Well, I suppose I've always been into the crime thriller genre, you know. So I started off with all the Kathy Reichs and all the, mm. the Scarpet when I was younger. But I um I read uh, I used to read a lot of horror. But I'm I'm now too frightened of life to to go near it. So, <laughs> I don't so, watch or read horror at all. So Stephen King, when <laughs> no, I, I was when I was young in my teens, you know, I would devour all those kind of books. But then I I do love beautifully written uh, fiction. Mm. So I've kind of evolved into. I've read a lot of Southern African work in the last sort of four or so years when I've been trying to break into the book world here, mm. and some some extraordinary kind of of books and now I I do you know love books that have a sort of a literary component mm. all together with your with your fast moving fiction I mean that's what I try and do because I have a, a deep love of language without allowing it to detract from the plot I, I work very hard at including 
beautiful words and making making the words sound great and reach another quality. And that's important. I mean, you know, you can sit there and you can read this stuff. And I mean, that's why when you're talking about Fifty Shades, I think I read <clears throat> the first hundred pages. I managed to grit my teeth. And I just said, you know what, this is just actually just not worth it. <laughs> it really isn't. You get to that stage where you're reading something and you go, I have to not just put this book down. It needs to be thrown with great force out the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a very good move on the LB part. James. LB Gra- yeah, e. B. James. E.B. James. White. White. What's her name? No, Don't even know. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, that can make you a lot of money. And that can, a one bestseller like that can mm. set you up. So I don't, I, I, not to take it away because people love reading different things. And clearly there were a lot of people who loved reading that. Do you think they were mainly women or do you think the men started reading it? Or do you think they found it pure or like a lot I, of us older I, people? I suspect a lot of women read it to men. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't, I don't know. I've personally never even held a copy of that book in my hands. You know, I'm mm. just not interested in that. Sex scenes, I don't really write because in a crime thriller, they don't advance the plot. <laughs> I also get, I'm watching something and all of a sudden there's a sex scene and I'm thinking, well, that, why? I've become... It's not important. And as my editor also taught me, I, the power of suggestion is great. Also mm. with violence, you know, you don't have to go all the way. Mm. You know, the bullet can can hit her head, not hit such a bad word, but, you know, the blood can spray off leaving a bower of red. And everybody knows that your character is now deceased. Mm. So you don't have to go into it in that much detail. The same as sex, you know, they can just fall onto the bed like a, a great tree felled by the lumberjacks mm. axe <laughs> and we all know what's happening next you know yeah. well when it comes to sex my, my favorite one in the book which i'm reading at the moment was like oh the only way she was going to get laid is to crawl up a chicken's ass and wait and it's <laughs> <laughs> like oh my god that is that is classic that no, is my, my characters do get laid you know and they do lay, <laughs> lay people but the thing about it is i i, I don't know it's not a comfortable thing i remember writing a sex scene in one book in the trilogy and then agonizing over it because I had to mention the condom. Mm. So I I didn't mention a condom, but because of HIV and AIDS and whatever, which was one of the central issues when I wrote my first book as Mm. well, I thought, no, I have to, you know what I mean? It just worried me and worried me and worried me until I brought it back and had him tie up the condom, you know, and mm. discard it because those kind of messages as well are just so... Said, don't worry, darling, I've got you covered. <laughs> ...are so important, you know, when mm. you're writing a book and you're writing about sex and you're writing about it in a country where, you know, we have 10 million people who have... who are compromised on mm. that level. Mm. So with me, there was always kind of a social aspect, the message. What is the message behind and what can you, through entertainment try and embed in people or try and impress upon people because I mean there is there's so much in our society particularly Mm. that needs to be thought about that needs to be brought out you know and and needs to get people even just briefly to think about so interesting okay so now you're going to be writing for you what's your next book going to be about is there a next book have you started? No, I haven't. You know, this is the first time in my life I haven't had a book on the start while the other book was being finished. Mm. So I think I I was a bit burnt out from my last book and from the edit process and from just how much work I had to make, I had to put in to make it the kind mm. of book it needed to be. So I have some short stories and whatever, but I hope I write some more books. 
but I am sort of at a stage in my life where I'm going back to some other passions of mine and busy with that. Oh, what are those? Those are education. So basically, education is one of my passions, adult education. So mm -hmm. I've done a lot of work in training, training teachers. And strangely enough, at the moment, I've been working in early childhood development and sort of grade R education, where finally there is, it does seem to be a lot of money being pumped in by the government. It's about 20 years too late. To get them to read. <laughs> well, you know, to, to make sure that every child has an optimal start in life. Mm. So aside from playing and developing, you know, there are a lot of things that you need to do to ensure that that child is actually going to reach its full potential. But going back again and saying we didn't have TV until we were 12, you know, it, it is, and we had radio and radio for me listening, mm. um, even when I've got the TV on, I'm usually doing something else, usually making blankets um, <laughs> so I can send them through to people to keep them warm. But I, I tend to still listen more than I will actually sit down and watch. And that's where podcasts have come in for me as well. I mean, I can sit there and I can actually, you know, make something while I'm thinking. Yeah, you don't have to cook, think about what drive, you're doing. All, all of those things, things yeah. which has become a, a better way of thinking. And I don't know, there's two, for me, there's always two cognitive levels. I mean, it is the hot and cold media. And the hot media, of course, is being involved in a book. And I say to my kids, you must read. You've got to read more. You need to get your brain working. And when we were reading and we were listening to radio, we were making up pictures all the time instead of just having everything handed over on a platter to us where we didn't have to use our imaginations. It was just all there. And I think that's one thing with the internet, with, with handheld devices, with television. The kids are just not getting that. And why so many of us are actually going into schools to help the teachers teach the kids to read. It's the parents also, because the parents of the young kids at the moment have also come from that culture where it was TV. They weren't just radio. It's an interesting, an interesting way of looking at things and who reads and who doesn't. Yeah, the lazy mind. I think that's it as well. Is now there's there's such a, a much more simple, passive mm. way to be entertained than actually engaging your mind. That peop that that wins out a lot of the time. Okay, so now if I turn around and say to you, right, let's write a book together. Yes. What would you think about that? Would you would you come back to writing if you had somebody to collaborate uh, with? Yeah, I think that would also be another a uh, 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 big thing. I think mm -hmm. a collaborative effort would be a lot of fun and would be a great way to write because writing's a lonely process, you mm -hmm. know. So you do seven years of sitting at your desk on your own, and people are not. You no, know, I never spoke about my books while I was writing them because also I'm one of these. Pansers. So a pantser flies by the seat of the pants. They don't do much planning. <laughs> I like that, a pantser. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's real book talk, you know. Pa are you a pantser or are you a planner? So planning is optimal. Yeah. If I, I think I would have probably had a much happier time writing in certain at certain times if I had planned my books more carefully. Mm -hmm. But I just couldn't do that because my characters unfolded and then dependent on their mindset and their circumstances, they would then decide to act in a way that was reliant on these factors. And I never knew what they were going to do from one. But you're the creator. How could you not know? Well, they would tell me, this is what I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. And I'd say, oh, that doesn't really. And I'm and finishing my books. I mean, I had more sleepless nights about how I was going to wrap things up and tie things up because I'd insufficiently planned. Mm. You know, so the thing about... Planning is that it, it is prefer it is a preferable way to write, and it's probably if you're cranking, if you're one of those writers who have to produce a 
100,000 words every three months, you're going to have to be a very good planner. But for me, it was more an interesting process, um, not always pleasant, mm. but it just always, I got there. But I don't know if I, I, at the moment, I couldn't get there on my own. So if you wrote with someone, mm. I think it would be, I don't know if you have to do that much planning. You'd have to decide on your along. genre. No, but then what you'd do is I, I'd say, right, Mel, here's my chapter. And you probably write in different point of views according to your character. Mm. And I'd send it off to you. And then you would respond to that. And what came back to me would then feed me to look at my, the psychology of my character and say, oh, my gosh, if this is what's going on, what's the next thing he's going to do in response to this? So it would be a, a, a discovery, a, a journey of discovery and surprise. And Absolutely. Not and just I, sitting and down in a room with a bottle of tequila and letting it flow. <laughs> well, I mean, those That's are also great helpful. too. Hey, everyone just say, write, drunk, edit, sober. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> and whatever way it flows. I mean, yeah, my first book, it didn't matter. It just flowed and came and then, yeah. But the the last book was I just it was an absolute struggle mm. absolute struggle so yeah so it was a bit of support someone else to brainstorm with a bit of bringing the kind of fun back into writing and also I, if I start something I cannot not complete it I'm Absolutely. one of those obsessive yeah. personalities so I just wouldn't do it to myself at the moment and also I just don't have that nagging social issue that have driven all I will um, find you one. We need no, another book. No, I'm sure we could find 400. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think also quite good to people, we're talking about writing these long series. You mm. know, authors don't know when enough's enough. They get greedy and then they start using other people and their name and other people do all the work. And like James Patterson. I know you're talking about get, James Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> with a South African writer of ours did that. Um, mm -hmm. um, and then... So I think there's a time, you know, mm. there's a time. If you're not feeling it and you're not loving it and you're not going to produce your best writing, step away from it for a while. And I also seem to have had this seven-year cycle in life where I do something for seven years and then I I need another challenge. Need I need something new. And burnout, I mean, burnout's a real thing. I got burnout when I trained, when I did major, you know, UNICEF projects. That mm. were, They were only three-year projects. And by the time they were finished, they needed to finish because, you know, there wasn't government uptake. There yeah. wasn't there were all those yeah. frustrations. And it just impacts upon if you're actually training and motivating people, you need to genuinely be feeling it. The same as writing, mm. you know. I mean, I could never be one of those writers who just… Keeps on churning book after book after. Has to churn them yeah. out. Has to because you have a, a, a publisher who's saying, where's your book, where's your book? Yeah, and you've signed something, you know, mm. and you have to do it. And there, But there are amazing people doing it and doing it incredibly well. Mm. South African Indies doing it and really very successful and so diligent and working so hard. But for me, it's just never been the way that I've done things. Okay, so you've got a book collective called, where can, where can people have a look on, on Facebook for the one you were talking about, where you can find writers and readers and things? Oh, in terms of? Of, of finding books of people to read, what you've been reading. Oh, well, me, a Goodreads is that for me. Yeah. So basically, I love Goodreads. It's probably the biggest platform mm. and you're, you're there as a writer and a reader you post everything that you read you can review if you like mm. you can rate them with how many stars you can go and see you can and you can follow authors you can you can get recommendations um, so Goodreads I would say is is a great platform for that I'm up on Goodreads as an author but then I also put everything that I read on mm. Goodreads I have reviewed books there may, mostly because the 
greatest gift you can get as a as an author is a review. Mm. So you know that's what you work very hard at at getting. And people are you know some people few people love writing reviews, <laughs> but most people don't. Mm. So that's what you can do for fellow. For, 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 fellow authors for fellow authors and for people who want to find books to read. Mm. I mean, where would you suggest where else that people can find out about South African writers, especially the crime and thriller writers, if they're new to the genre? There was supposed to be a, a new list coming out that Mike Nichol was going to. Oh, he's also one of my favorite. Yeah, people. that he was go- he was busy uh, compiling, but I haven't I haven't actually seen it. I mean, you can just Google, you know, mm. Google's a great South African tool. Writers. It'll bring you, it'll bring a lot to you. But and if people want to find your books, what do they Google? They can Google Sarah Key author. They can Google me, look for me on Amazon. They'll find me there. Yeah. Also Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook. Although, you know, there's only, I have Sarah Key thrillers, but there's only so much punting of your book you can do. Mm. You know, people get very tired of seeing your cover you know, you have to have a, a brand. You have to be more who you are, have a personality. Mm. You can't just go on and on and on about your latest book and because people get very bored of that. Yeah. So you have to, you know, I mean, that's the funny thing with my editor with the avatar. She was like, you have to give people stuff about you. You know, they have to know what you <laughs> and do. And you've given me nothing about you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so for me on my, on my social media, I love puns. I love language. Mm. I love my dogs. I love wine. I love food. I love gardening. And that's what I, I most Food is one of the ones there. I see coming up most of the time. And I sit there and I'm like, when am I going to get the supper invite? Come on, that food looks oh, awesome. as soon as COVID. <laughs> as no, soon as COVID's done. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I mean, I think that the, the kitchen is my decompression chamber mm. and I do uh, look not everyone loves pres- you know cooking every day mm. for a family but I do realize that that's not going to last for too much longer as well and food is my love language and it is my place where as I, you know I have my glass of wine or two <laughs> or <a> and, <laughs> depending on the mood and um, I just get in there and I do that and I also think that feeds my creative side mm. and and food also you know i grew up in a family where we cook my mother was a trained cordon bleu cook my brother is a great cook as well mm. so for us food is just a, another aspect of life um and it's just it's something that no matter how bad the day has been to put a nice meal on the table at the end of it and come together has always been part of of my life. I've got a thing in my brain now about somebody trying to make the perfect meringue (laughs) (laughs) and how somebody's killing him for the recipe because it is just going to take over the world and a a little ball of light fluffy whiteness. Sorry, let me stop that now. But (laughs) also cooking cooking television, you know, like MasterChef UK as well as one one, another pleasure zone of mine. Um, So to watch people cook, not, I'm not too keen on on the TV drama of Australian stuff, but I do like to watch. I mean, what people can produce is just incredible. Honestly, if I won the lotto, the only thing I'd do for myself, apart from getting another car, preferably if it was a lot of money, then I'd get myself a really nice old American muscle car, would be to have a personal chef that would cook for me every day. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be fantastic. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so very much. Um, it's been actually wonderful talking to you. It's not often that I get to talk to women writers who are writing about things that I like reading about. And yes, I am a, a crime and thriller aficionado. Love it completely. Um, even though I grew up on Mills and Boone when I was a teenager for a while. <laughs> we all did that. But thank you so very much. And um, yeah, let us know when you're ready to write another book and let's get going on it. Thank you. That would be wonderful. Thanks for having me, Mel. Right. So everybody, don't forget Sarah Key, author. That's K-E-Y. Go and check out um, her latest book, which came out, Bales of Smoke. 
and that's a standalone book about a serial killer. <laughs> we'll catch you again next time. Take care, and we'll see you again in the reading room. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.